Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today is the Secretary of the U.S. Army, Eric Fanning. He is the first openly gay leader of the armed forces. Fanning's job is like a real-life game of risk. When Russia or North Korea flexes its muscles, Secretary Fanning makes sure U.S. troops are ready to move to conflict borders. He's the guy whose job it is to ensure that those same soldiers have the tanks, body armor, and weapons they need when they hit the ground in Afghanistan or Iraq. I describe it as being the CEO of a business unit. My job is to, re- to build the army, essentially, recruit, train, and equip, uh, and then turn it over to the warfighting generals who report up through the commander-in-chief, the president. When were you appointed to this position and by whom? I was appointed to this position by President Obama. Uh, it was a very convoluted path. I've had nine titles in, the, in this administration, all in the Pentagon, uh, nine different uh, positions that I moved through, including at one point acting secretary of the Air Force. I, I was in the Navy Department as deputy undersecretary. Before uh, Obama. Uh, in Obama. Right. I started, so Obama's elected in November of 2008. Right. And, and you come and you start working with Obama About when? April in 2009. So the spring of 2009 yeah. you start. Yes. And you've had multiple positions Multiple there. positions, yeah. And I worked in the Bill Clinton Pentagon as well. That's, that's uh, almost where I started. What was your relationship with, to the military before the Clinton and Obama appointments? I worked in the House Armed Services Committee uh, for uh, Chairman Les Aspen, who became Bill Clinton's first defense secretary. So you were on Aspen's staff? Aspen's staff, yeah. When you worked under Obama, what were the multiple appointments that he gave you? Well, I started uh, as a special assistant to Secretary Gates, well, essentially working transition, went to Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy, Undersecretary of the Air Force, Acting Secretary of the Air Force, Chief of Staff to Secretary of Defense Carter. Then they moved me over to the Army as Acting Undersecretary, then Acting Secretary. Then I had to go back to Carter's office during the confirmation process, then was confirmed and appointed in May. And... What, what's been your motivating force? I mean, were you, did you come from a military family? I did come from a military family. My, I have two uncles that went to West Point and were career army. My father grew up. Uh, his family, the Fanning family, is right from, uh, from Cornwall, New York, right outside of West Point. Uh, so it was um, a big part of the family. I have another uncle who was career Air Force. But uh, with the prohibition on gays and lesbians serving, I wasn't allowed to serve. So going in the uniformed side was not an option for me. Well, were it not for that prohibition, would you have gone? I, my, my uncles were lobbying hard for me to uh, go to a military academy, um, follow in their footsteps, but uh, it just wasn't an option. Uh, so you didn't really entertain it very much? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't out when I was in high school thinking about these things, uh, but, but it just wasn't an option for me. And so I uh, knew at a certain point in college that I wanted to come to Washington and, and work in government, and, and I wanted to start on the Hill, and I got a great job in the Armed Services Committee. How would you say your experience of being a gay man who wanted to serve in the military and concluded that that was um, not possible and you didn't even bother, how did that influence your feelings about that in the military? Meaning when that changed, was it just bittersweet for you? 
I, I was in the Pentagon on the first day of the Clinton administration. Don't ask, don't tell didn't exist. It was created that first year of the Clinton administration. And, and it was, what did you think of that when it was created? It was a difficult thing to be a part of. I was, I was, a very, I, was I think, 24 years old and working in Aspen's front office, and so I was exposed to a lot of the conversations that were taking place. And I ended up leaving um, government eventually, Washington. I moved up to New York City because I didn't think there was a place for me in that world, uh, once in I a don't ask, don't tell world. In a don't ask, don't tell world. It didn't apply to civilians, but it but it still reflects what was the culture at the time. And you came to New York to do what? I worked for CBS News for a while. Actually, <laughs> did a number of things. We worked for CBS News for a while, but but I missed it. I I. Uh, and then what happened? Well, I, I ended up going back to Washington and working for a think tank, and uh, kind of coincidentally and fun for me, one of my oldest friends in Washington, who, who I met on the Armed Services Committee, was at this think tank, said, come here, there's an opening. She's now the Secretary of the Air Force. Um, so the two of us being service secretaries together is a fun time. But I, I found my way back, got into the Obama administration, Don't Ask, Don't Tell still existed, and it was, I was conflicted about going back to a building that had that discriminated. And, but, and did you feel that discrimination? Well, I didn't necessarily because I was on the civilian side. And I think uh, there, were, there were lots of people trying to send signs that they thought it was a time for a change. And the president had campaigned very strongly on repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, it, was, it was difficult to get there, and it, it almost didn't happen. It happened. It was one of the very last things that he did before the first midterms. And it was, a, it was an exciting thing to be a part of. You know, you interact with uniformed military people all the time. And during your career, did you get a sense that some of them were uh, less than warm toward you because you represented this, the new military and you represented the, I, uh, the inclusive military? I think or there are a lot of always, people... has it always been polite? Well, they're always going to be polite to me, especially in the current job, right. um, since, you know, service sector before ranks anywhere in uniform. Right. I, I think, first of all, Culturally, things have changed so much right. since the start of the Clinton administration. And what I've learned over and over and over again is you can't make decisions or you live your life in fear of, of the people who have negative views on that because they are um, they're outnumbered by those who are supportive of the change. And at each time that I got a new job and got some attention and you know, was labeled the gay guy, uh, more and more people would find ways to, to show their support of me personally and the things we were working on. Describe exactly what is your job? What, what are you charged with doing? The service secretaries are CEOs of business units. The Army budget, when you include the war supplemental budgets, is over $140 billion a year. There's about 1.1 million people in uniform, a quarter of a million civilians, all a part of this apparatus. And my job is to oversee the creation of, of the Army, to make sure we're recruiting the right people, make sure we're training them properly, keeping them ready, and then keeping them equipped, uh, and then taking care of their welfare, morale, and their And, and who do you families. rely on to tell you that they're properly equipped? It's an enormous organization. There sure. are lots of people that help me with those things. The, my uh, uniform sort of people. Uniform people. You rely on uniform people to tell you what's going on and what's not going on. Well, it's a mix. I look for you know certainly the the chief of staff of the army, the senior general in the army, whose office is you know, our offices separate by only a door. Um, uh, is the one I, I, I I'm, I'm most closely listening to, but I've got career civilians, I've got contractors, I've got all sorts of people that can help me assess the health of the force. And the contractors are, do they have offices all lined up around the Pentagon? Is there like a little contractor's village there? It's not, it's not a village, but they right. are, they're, they're, they're <laughs> are. They have a presence there. In, there is an army of contractors helping the army. They're out there in Virginia. Yeah. But I ask that because, you know, listen, 
there are so many, you know, I think fair and some loaded questions that people always have for people in the military. Americans tend to feel that the United States military costs us too much money per uh, the uh, percentage of our gross national product. Do you have any opinion about that? Yeah, we do spend a lot of money on on the military. Uh, and I get asked all the time, why do we spend as much as the next X number of countries combined? We are asked to do a lot more. We, we Our adversaries only have to keep us from penetrating. They only have to jam us. They only have to block us. We have to penetrate. We have to do it everywhere in the world. And we have to do it decisively. No other country does that. Um, the Russians are a near-peer adversary. The Chinese are. But they're not global powers. Um, we are. And if we're asked to do that, it's going to cost money. Do you think we can still afford to be a global power in the coming years? I think we can, but I think we need to think more creatively about it, as President Obama has been trying to do. There, there are Such limits as. to what we can spend. Right. And, and recognizing, as he does, that national security is more than just the military. Uh, it's, it's a whole combination of things across the entire federal bu- budget, and there has to be some balance there. But in regards to this military power, secretive military power, uh, the military does what's asked of it. Uh, they don't go and kill Gaddafi unless the civilian leadership tells them to do that. Um, I, you know, the, the, the people being confused that the Secretary of the Army is a civilian, not a, a military leader, uh, not a uniformed military leader. The Secretary of Defense is a civilian, and the Commander-in-Chief of the entire United States is the President, who's elected by the people. And so it's that civilian apparatus that tells the military what the strategic goals are, and the military figures out how to but accomplish it. But the military, it. the uniformed military that's not the civilian uh, uh, side of it that you're talking about, I'm sure there's a tremendous amount of pushback from them about what they're telling you they need. And I'm sure there's a lot of lobbying going on from uh, manufacturers and from providers about telling them what they need. And and their attitude is, let's err on the side of caution and build something that we may or may not need at a cost of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars for some system. Uh, Does that happen? Certainly, there are all sorts of forces lobbying on what we should spend and how much we should spend. The defense industrial complex, um, other lobbyists, the uniform military, the um, the civilian uh, overseers, uh, Congress, all sorts of different opinions on Congress. So it's it's an it's an enormous elaborate process to put a budget together because there are so many voices. But have trying you to ever do it? But have you ever been in a moment with a uniformed uh, senior, you know, official, you know, general, or whatever that with their rank is, and told them, "No, you can't have that." Well, it, it doesn't quite work that okay, way. Okay, tell me, how does it work? Well, it's a very collaborative process. The, right. the budget process never ends. I mean, in, right. you know, we're we're living in one budget year. We're um, working with Congress to get approval for the next budget year. You know, we, we're in a budget year without a budget right now, which has been happening every year since, since this administration started. And we're planning the next budget cycle, getting ready to submit it. So you're, it's just this constant ongoing process of building the budget. You have a sense of what your top line is, how much money you have. You know what what strategic guidance you've been given, and it's just a matter of balancing risk. You could never spend enough money to buy risk down to zero. And so that's really what the process is. Where, where do you place your bets on risk um, to make sure that you're ready for whatever you're asked to do today? Well, I, I've always felt that, and this is a very oversimplified view in, in under normal circumstances, let, it go, let alone in the presence of someone like yourself with all the inside information you have, but I've always been of the belief of 
Uh, let's give every member of the military a thousand dollar a month raise. That's twelve thousand dollars times uh, over a million people. So you're talking about roughly fifteen billion dollars, which is spit in the ocean to this government. And I've always been told that people in the military who are the ones that make these decisions say, "Oh God, no! We, if we're going to spend fifteen billion dollars, we don't want to give it to a bunch of soldiers who are going to buy charcoal briquettes and diapers and beer with that. We need that to be spent on a weapon system that's going to move the Dow." America knows they're going to buy stuff, and we, and we spend that money in a certain way to manipulate the United States economy. Do you believe that that happens uh, to some not, degree? Not in the Pentagon. <laughs> um, we do think about our industrial Good base. Answer. You know, some, sometimes when, when your spending gets low, and, and we've cut our procurement budget pretty substantially, over a third uh, in the yeah. army in this administration, and salaries in the broad sense for just the uniformed soldiers, not the civilians, is almost half of the army budget as it is. Right. We don't think about the impact our spending has in the economy. Now, elected officials do, uh, certainly the economy does, but we're thinking that our responsibility is not just to make sure soldiers are well compensated, but it is that they have the gear and the training they need to, to come home after whatever we ask them to do so that they're as safe as possible in, in completing the mission. So how much does recruitment fall under your purview? Are you involved in recruitment? Recruitment, yes. Recruitment. And how, and how would you describe the recruitment process now? Well, it's, it's... U.S. fighting forces are signing up heavily where... What's their, what's their socioeconomic background, people who are going into the different branches? It is something that, um, that I spent some time on and, and many others did as well, including uh, Secretary Carter, the current Secretary of Defense, because we do, we're 40-plus we're years into an all-volunteer force. We have the most professional, lethal military we've ever had. It's a very successful um, all-volunteer force. But it is creating a growing divide between those who serve and the rest of right. society. There seems to be one on, on social media. I see some tremendous antagonism by people who say, you know, if you don't support the troops and, and people who, who feel very isolated in the military community because they feel that people don't understand their sacrifices. Well, I think that's true. I, I, I don't like the notion that you, if you aren't supporting certain wars or certain activities, you're not supporting the troops. You can support the troops without agreeing with yes, how they're being deployed. That, that's the amen. Um, but I do believe it's true that the you know less than 1% of the country is serving at any given time. And so the majority of the country, the they smallest don't have percentage of that veterans, fight. yeah. Right. And it is, to your earlier question, it is geographic. You know, we recruit sort of through the fog Midwest down and then across the south and and there are large parts of the countries where we're not successful at recruiting right. well, how, What do you think can be done to change that or, or can anything be done to change that? I do think things can be done. We, we um, You know recruiters will go where there's where there is success at getting recruits and so, so are they abandoning a, certain parts of the country or, it's, it's, or, or minimizing not abandoning it I wouldn't say that they're pulling back from those parts of the country, they're just focusing on where they know there is a culture and that we've been successful recruiting before and we need to make an effort to reach out to other communities and to go to other schools for ROTC programs than, than we're currently doing to make sure we're going across the entire country. So a man or a woman is sitting down in front of a recruiting officer in the modern army and they fill out some paperwork, they fill out some forms and they literally sign up and join the army. And in the modern army, for people who don't know, what happens then? Where do they go? Everyone goes to basic training, uh, and the army is. And the basic enormous. training is the same. The basic training for is the same. Everybody who enters the, the operation. Everybody who enters. And how many how many training bases are there in the U.S. right now? It's hard to say because we we are doing training everywhere. Right. Initial installation training, um, it, it for all the services is done differently. We have the um, army. Yeah, the army Fort Jackson uh, in South Carolina is where we do most of our initial training. Um, and how and many then, people are coming through there a month? 
uh, I don't know the monthly figures. We assess for the active component about 60,000 people a year. year. How many of them make the cut and stay? Some of them do. Most of them most of them stay. We need to do a little bit better job of making sure uh, that we can catch catch those people a little bit earlier, um, because you don't want someone to go through twelve weeks of training and then leave. It's not very efficient for right. us. From there, then, depending on what what branch they're going to go into or what they're going to do in the army, there's follow on training. When you say what branch, meaning they can sign up for the army and wind up being sent elsewhere? Well, no, no, no. They sign up for the army. I mean, branch like infantry, right. armor, artillery. The Army, yeah. right. And uh, after they do that, uh, you evaluate their expertise and what, you know, some people have more advanced skills than others and they go into different operations, correct? We do. The, the one thing, it's, it's uh, pretty unique to the Army that when you sign up a recruiting station, we're going to determine what you're going to do. I mean, we have, we know what openings we have, we know what needs we have in the Army, and we're going to line you up to that. So when soldiers are going through basic training, they know in all likelihood what they're going to be doing when they, when they get out of basic training. So the ones who go into basic training, is it, is it explained to them when they sign on? Because I've always been intrigued by this. Is it explained to them when they sign on that everyone would be eligible to be in combat and fight? Or are they told when they sign on, you don't necessarily have to go into combat if you want to. If you tell us you don't want to go and get shot at and maybe die somewhere, we can put you here. Do they, are they given that option or no? Well, if you, if you wear the uniform, you could be deployed. Right. But certain choices beyond basic training uh, are going to increase or decrease the likelihood that you are actually going to deploy or are going to go into combat. Uh, and some people choose things that will keep them away from that. Others volunteer to go into combat. So the, Right. Okay. So yeah. now we're down to the men and women who go to combat, yeah. who want to go over there to these extraordinarily surreal environments in the Middle East and Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth that we, that we only see depicted in movies or we see it in some footage that's embedded footage or what have you. And how would you describe the people that want to go into combat today? Well, first of, all, brave. first of all, it's most of them. Uh, it, it is incredible bravery. It, it is a, an incredible sacrifice and commitment. I, I, every day I do this, and I've been doing it now for 25 years, um, uh, this line of work, I'm more amazed at what we ask our soldiers to do and what they do and the impact it has on their families, on uh, the entire rest of their lives. And so it is a, a pretty remarkable thing that people sign up to do. Right. Um, at some point, I would imagine, the military sits down and they have, you know, when uh, in the medical profession, I learned this when I did some research to play a doctor in a film, we sat down and talked about the M&M that they do after the operation when the patient or the procedure when the person dies, the mortality and morbidity conference. And they talk about why the person died and what they learned from that person dying. And I'm wondering what is the M&M equivalent for the military in terms of not just a war itself, not just a region itself, but even specific battles you fight and, you're, and, and, and decisions are made to send people here. And many, many people die. Of course, many of them innocent civilians, women and children in that area. And I'm wondering, what's that function like for you or anybody under your wing? How do we minimize that? I think we have. I mean, if you just look at this, How? the last 15 years of this right. war compared to what happened in Vietnam, uh, as a country, we won't tolerate those types of losses anymore. And it factors into the calculus of the decision makers when they're deciding what to do, how to deploy, how to utilize the force that they've got. Anytime something goes wrong, there's an assessment of it. Um, anytime civilians are killed, anytime a soldier is killed, we are constantly assessing um, what happened 
and what we can internally. learn from it internally. Well, oftentimes externally too. The press is very involved. The Doctors Hill is very without involved. borders in the hospital yeah, that was bombed. Exactly. There are conclusions and then we make adjustments going forward. Right. War is a terrible thing. Right. Uh, there's just no question about it. For our soldiers, for civilians where we're fighting. But we have done enormous things, I think, to, to minimize, especially civilian deaths. That factors into anytime there's any risk to civilians. And, and remember, we're not fighting just in deserts. We're fighting in urban environments as well. And, and the adversaries, ISIL, others are very crafty about being able to hide and blend in. Anytime there's a risk, it goes very high up the chain of command. Decisions that were made in the field in previous wars are made in Washington now based on that calculus of risk. And that in and of itself creates risk for our forces, not being able to maybe react as quickly as they might want to, but all in an effort to make sure that we're minimizing the risk in the field for civilians as much as possible. What do you think would happen, I mean, if we were able to secure, because um, I'm very cynical, not about the military, because like, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I've walked this tough line where, you know, supporting troops, respecting, my dad was a Marine. He was a drill instructor on Paris Island. Uh, you know, I have all the respect. And at the same time, I'm very worried about the civilian uh, oversight and the civilian control of that in terms of it being applied properly, I think, in, in, you know, properly in my terms. And so, you know, we have a new president, and I'm wondering, do... Do people that work under you who are career military, uniform military, did you get a sense? That, could, could you hear the cheers down the hallway when this guy won? We'll have a new president. Uh, we have a president-elect. Yes. We still have That's true. That's Obama's true. still there. Thank God. I can have a couple uh, more months of him. I, I, I would just say this. It, the, the military is incredibly professional. First of all, it's, it's, in, it's large. And just right. in the Army, as I said, in the active, the Guard and Reserve components, um, we have over a million people in uniform. And so you, you have the gamut of opinions there. But they are but we're dedicated, always... professional, and they, they, the oath they take, and they take it seriously, is to the Constitution. But we were always led to believe that they do have their political preferences in terms of somebody they think is going to spend more money on the military. I don't see that. I see the polls that people come out. I see what people are thinking. I do think um, if you're in uniform and you're at risk of going into harm's way, uh, more is better. You want more equipment. You want more modern equipment. And you want more training. Uh, and you probably want more um, battle buddies on either side of you to make sure that you're not deploying constantly. Um, but I think also, especially as you get more senior and your focus is more strategic, you want to make sure you have civilian leadership that is steady and is thoughtful about what they're going to do. The, there's this myth out there that the military is the first to want to jump in and go fight. And it's really the opposite in many cases because nobody knows better than the military what fighting, what war, what combat is really like. And it should be your choice of last resort. Coming up, Eric Fanning talks about how an overtapped U.S. military responds to increased tensions around the world. Explore the Here's the Thing archives, where you can hear my conversation with newsman Dan Rather, who has reported on his share of conflicts around the world. I was remarkably unprepared to go to Vietnam, and I will say that to this day, and let's face it, I've been really lucky and blessed by being on a lot of big stories, uh, that the honor, and I use that word measurably, the honor of covering American men and women uh, in combat in that green jungle hell uh, was one that I shall never forget. Take a listen to Dan Rather at Here's the Thing.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. 
As Secretary of the Army, Eric Fanning's reach touches all aspects of that branch. He's the CEO, as he likes to say, the guy in charge when it comes to weapons and equipment, veterans and finances. He works with decorated generals and policy experts. But Fanning says he feels most at home with the enlisted soldiers, the boots on the ground folks, the very men and women who are facing new stresses today. Under the Obama administration, there's been a decrease in troops, something Fanning says concerns plenty in the military. It's stressing to many of them because we're still being asked to do a lot of things all over the world. But the worst thing for us would be to uh, increase the size of the force without the money that goes with it for equipping and training. If, if we had more money right now, I would be spending it on um, on procurement because and, and installations and investments that are in the future that we've mortgaged to make sure we're ready for today. If we had... Uh, however many troops, I, I've heard President-elect Trump talk about 540,000 active component. We need to make sure we have the rest of the money for the infrastructure to support those troops. Did we just recently move 300,000 troops to the Russian border? NATO? Not 300,000, but yeah, we are moving more equipment. The final numbers aren't set yet um, uh, because we've pulled down substantially since the end of the Cold War what we right. have in Europe. And so for deterrence, uh, Russian deterrence, we are putting more there. Those troops going there send a signal that you don't want them to what? We want the Russians to know that we're, we are watching and we are present and we are ready if they try and meddle. And, and you think about how the borders, where our troops are today versus where they were in the Cold War. They're much closer to the Russian border now than they were before because all those former Soviet republics have wanted to join NATO and have wanted to make friends with the West. And so you've got the small Baltic countries up there, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, who can, there's a fear who that can, the Russians might make a move on them. There's a feel, fear that the Russians might make a move on them. And the Russians are very creative at, at asymmetrical warfare and, and, and doing things that are just short of triggering any of our NATO commitments, uh, information operations, um, intelligence gathering, all sorts of things in the Baltics right now. And so they're nervous. Our allies uh, on the border, other parts of the border are nervous, and our presence there helps reassure our allies, and also change the calculus, hopefully, for the Russians. When you say that the United States uh, is, is challenged in so many, uh, you know, the Army is challenged in so many areas, the task is spread out in so many regions of the world, beyond the Middle East, beyond Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, whatever you decide to focus on, what would you say is the most challenging part for the Army? Well, it's... <laughs> this Russian border? No, I... I I think most people have, have in the last few years said Russia is the biggest threat to the United States, but increasingly we're concerned about North Korea uh, and their, their nuclear program and their um, intercontinental ballistic missile program. Um, they keep testing and showing that they're making improvements that, uh, that has us worried about the risk they can impose on the United States. Uh, so I, I worry about, I mean, there are army soldiers in over 150 countries today. Uh, and so we're, we're all over the place. And when I talk about the risk to the army, I mean, we're running it hard. Uh, whether you agree with how much we spend or don't spend, uh, we are running our military pretty hard all over the world right but, now. But, but another interesting thing for me is not, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I understand that sometimes there is a need for, you know, the, I only have cliches handy to me, by the way, you know, boots on the ground and so forth. And But there's another part of me that has, and this is a completely stupid, from ignorance statement, which is, I think to myself, God, if I was the president, 
I'd get on a plane and I'd fly and I'd go visit our six or eight greatest allies who have the dough because it's going to cost some money. And I would set up, you know, I'm not going to say Mission Impossible, but I'd set up some elite hit team to go out and just take out the leaders and then the top-level brass of some of these organizations worldwide, whether we got to go to Berlin or, uh, or the Philippines. It doesn't matter when the world we're in North Korea, get into North Korea, which we can do. I feel like we wait for, for things to foment to where it becomes war, whether it's heavy naval, heavy air force, heavy ground troops, droning, what have you, rather than going in there more surgically. Does the government, does, does your department talk about that ever, about well, things being more surgical? Yes, and there's there are a number of surgical with strikes intelligence, taking place all obviously, the time. with participation. Intelligence, yeah. We I mean the, the size of the, the way they got Osama. Right? Exactly. That is an important part of of our military capability and clandestine operations. Clandestine operations, um surgical operations as you mentioned, uh drones used in the right way, but that's only one part. Um that doesn't deter near peer adversaries. That doesn't help you hold land. I mean, boots on the ground aren't necessarily more efficient, but you know, we can take out the leaders of ISIL, and there's another wave right behind them. I mean, they just sending new leaders in to replace the ones that we go, taking How do we out. go and kill the people that are the gardeners that are producing all the bulbs there that are sprouting? Well, that, that's I've got why plenty of these bad analogies for you, but these gardening analogies, but go ahead. They're not flowers, though, just right. like you said. Exactly. Uh, it's, Weeds. Uh, it's a combination of all of these things. You, you need, um, you know, militarily, we could sort of wipe out ISIL in Iraq and Iraq and Syria, but what would happen after our troops roll through? What happens, you know, New new insurgents take their place right behind it. We need those. We need some sort of stability politically over there, and then those countries need to have the military and the police and so forth to hold the land that's been cleared. If you could wind the clock back, if you could wind the clock back to even uh, just before nine eleven, or even right after nine eleven, in, in in hindsight, which is terrible. If you had it to do over again, what would you have liked to have the United States military do right on the heels of 9-11? What, what do you think they should have done? Well, I, let me Looking back in hindsight. Let me caveat that by saying that I, 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 my hindsight's twenty twenty. What <laughs> yeah. I do remember, uh, I was working at a think tank at the time when 9-11 took place. I do remember thinking, we are not debating this. I, I didn't have an opinion because I didn't, I didn't feel all the facts were out there and the debate wasn't taking place. And I blame my party just as much as the Republican Party for, for not insisting that that debate take place on whether we should do this and what the strategy should be. I, I, I didn't support it. I'm not on record either way because I was just a think tank staffer at the time. Um, but I thought it was taking our eye off the ball of Afghanistan where I thought we really needed to focus. Right. <laughs> but, but my biggest criticism looking that. back is... We didn't have we didn't have the debate I think you need to have, and that's when when we talk about the growing divide between the military, which is incredibly professional and just does what it's asked to right. do. Um, the whole country's got to be involved in sending a military its military to war. Uh, has got to have skin in the game, and that's not how we've really. But been I think that other countries years. have to have more skin in the game. My my, my comment as a civilian when nine eleven happened, I, I thought to myself, let's build a military base and make everybody pay for it. The Brits, the French, everybody, the Australia, every, everybody who's in, in NATO, we're going to hand them a bill and build a military base the size of Rhode Island in the middle of Afghanistan so that everybody knows it's not the U.S., it's not us, it's we. All of us are here because we all share this fear of what you're going to do. Well, first of all, we, we have a number of allies um, that are 
ponying up. Um, you mentioned special forces, Australians, Brits, French. Um, we, there are a number of countries out there that have incredibly capable special forces that work with us. Right. Uh, it is true um, that only, I think, four NATO countries right now are living up to the commitment of how much of their GTP they're supposed to Who spend. Who are they? Uh, well, one is Greece, and that's just because the the denominator changed since their economy is having so, many, so much trouble. Um, Poland has stepped up. Britain is doing it. Um, but m- the vast majority of them are not. I think part of the problem is we don't necessarily internationally, the international community, invest in those um, those institutions in other societies that help in the transition to whatever the future is. And building a huge a, a military base inside of Rhode Island, that would create all sorts of other problems for us because that just makes us look like an occupying force. And we so want, what? you want to keep your presence down. So what? Because that's what will create that. You said, what do we do about the gardeners that are planting the bulbs well, so for the, the weeds? So, so that's inspiring. I stuff. think that's a big part. I mean, who wants another, who wants other countries But are we really an occupying country? force there now with, with a, with, by a different name? Well, we've, we've brought down our troop levels there and we're trying to have the majority of them focused on training, advising, and assisting, helping build the army and the police so that those countries have some organic capability to, to foster stability in their country so that it's not us. And we, we are trying to minimize our footprint and our visibility there in many ways because just like the president thinks Guantanamo is a recruiting tool, us having boots on the ground in those places can do, have the same effect as well. What are you going to do when you're gone? I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> my my plan was, um, you know, to to what stay would you like full to eight do? years. Well, I I would like to find someplace really warm uh, and go for a while. And think, this is I love this job. It's a great job, um, and you know we have soldiers in harm's way today. And so, a, any place in government where a smooth transition and and someone having the stick every single second is important. It's in the Department of Defense. And so I will do this job and focus on it um, with all that I can until someone else is in the seat. You want to stay in the States? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. I love Washington. You're married to your partner? We're not married. You're not. But we're you're not. together how long? We've been, well, we've known each other 10 years. But what about overseas? I mean, you've probably traveled all over the world. Yeah, I, I've, I've been to over 80 countries now. And, and uh, I'd like, I've always wanted to live out of the country. I've always wanted to live someplace else. And now might be the time. Um, I'd like to teach a little. I'd like to, really would just like to take a break. This what do you is, think would be the best application of the knowledge you have and the experience you have? I, you know, other I, than consulting and getting a job in the yeah. for-profit world. No, but there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. You've got to pay the bills. But right. I, um, I'd like to teach. I've, it's always been an interest of mine. When I first came to Washington, my plan was to stay a couple of years, get a PhD, and go the academic route. And I just, early on in my career, kind of had things evolve rapidly and, and, and got on a different track. And I, I, I enjoy that part of it. I, one of the things I like doing in my job is is spending time with ROTC cadets or West Point cadets that are just at that point in their lives and their careers and are thinking about things differently. And so that's one thing I'm thinking about. But, I, but I'm only half joking when I say I'm going to find a nice beach and just relax for a little while because these are, these are tough jobs. They're kind of nonstop. Write a book, maybe? Uh, could write, write a, a book? book. I'm the only political appointee who's served in all three military departments, Navy, Air Force, and Army. I think it would be great if you so, did write a book. My plan was to, was to try and uh, stay in for eight years, get a couple of different opportunities, uh, pace myself so I could do that, but be tired at the end so I knew I'd done everything I could, and I've succeeded at that. So it'll, you know, I, it, this election didn't go the way I had hoped, and, and I had hoped to stay in the job a little bit longer to get more done. 
Um, but uh, it, it'll all work out, and uh, and and I I take try to take advantage of those breaks because you can't just walk into your board of directors, your boss one day, and say, "Can I see you in three months?" And so I'm in no hurry to figure out what's next. What will you miss about the job? The people. Uh, I, I have a, an amazing team around me, and one of the things I, I love the best, I, I've, I've worked in the Pentagon more years between the two administrations than, than most people probably think is healthy, but, and I like that. I like Washington, but I love getting out into the field and interacting with soldiers. Um, every time I travel, they want to, you know, you get on a plane, you go a long distance, and they want to stick you in a dark room with a PowerPoint presentation, and the, the rule is I won't do anything that I could do in my office, and so I just try and get out into the field as far as I can and and watch soldiers doing what they're doing, and if they'll let me do it with them. And beyond a, a partisan discussion about U.S. military policy, and some people fear that Americans are got a broken bottle in one hand and a chair in the other, and they're picking fights with everybody. And out of out of a deep respect for the military, this is not about questioning their their preparedness or questioning the judgment of their deployments and so forth and their and their conflicts. But people are afraid that eventually we're going to get to a point where if the Russians and or the Chinese make trouble for us, we're not going to have the strength left to fight them. Do you think there there's steps that can be taken in the coming administration that can help strengthen our position to be prepared to fight the Russians in the Baltic or something like that? Do, well, we, need, do we need to get trimmer and fitter to do that? We are ready now. Right. Um, uh, we, we have an incredibly capable and lethal military. Right. So, that's, but, so that's why it's so expensive, because we are ready. We are ready, and, and we, we, we want an unfair fight where, wherever we fight, um, whether it's a near-peer advocacy, whether it's terrorism, whether it's space, whatever, where, cyber, wherever it is, we want an unfair fight. But you hit it squarely on the head that... Um, we are asking the military to do a lot right now. And so we're ready, but tired. I mean, we're not doing the, – the, the, these wars the last 15 years have, have taken us away from the type of training we want to do to be as ready as possible. And we're trying to refocus that on, a, a little bit. And whether that's a, more money for training, whether that's asking the military to do less than it's doing around the world right now, whether that's increasing the size of the military, there are a number of different ways that you can get at that. But um, but no adversary should think that they can take us on, even as we're stretched around the world, uh, and ready. not realize it's a bad mistake. Right. The um, I mean, many people obviously believe that uh, much of the military uh, activity on behalf of the United States in the Middle East is about oil and wanting to secure sources of oil. But of course, if we don't need the oil, if we look to the Middle East and say our oil needs here are so grossly diminished now. Do we just get up and walk away now because we don't need to secure that area? Well, I, I think the calculus has changed over time, and it's not about oil in the way that it was in the past. Um, we do have friends over there. We do have allies and partnerships over there that I think, um, and I think those commitments are important. But yeah, if we picked up and left, um, we, we have we we have a a strong insurgent terrorist presence there that has made clear that they have capabilities to strike globally and have a desire to do that. And I'd rather be having that fight over there than inside our borders or on our borders. So two last questions. What do you think about the, uh, I don't, I don't want to say sacrifice, although that certainly is a handy word that comes to mind, but what do you think about the path that the gay community has taken in the military? Are you extremely proud of that, about how they negotiated these waters over the last several years? Yeah, I'm very proud of that. Yeah. I, 
again, having you know started this before Don't Ask, Don't Tell was even created, been there when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was created, been there when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, which was a remarkable moment. Society has just changed so fast. And as a military, are they are they adapting to that as well? Yeah, I, it, it almost seems like it happened forever ago now <laughs> because we've moved on to a lot of other things. But the military can maybe move in some way slowly, but once a decision is made, they execute, they salute, they move on, and they do it very right. professionally. The, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the, uh, the allowing of open service of gays and lesbians was remarkably professional and smooth. It, was, it, it made me proud of a number of things. It made me proud that we did it. Uh, it made me proud that the president made it a priority and got it done, and it made me proud of the military when they did it. And then, you know, we've done that desegregating uh, long before most of the rest of the country did. We pay women right now equal wages of, uh, for, for what they do for what men are paid. Uh, we've opened up service to uh, transgender soldiers, airmen, Marines, sailors as well. And, and when you take all these things, you know, opening up all combat positions to women, it's about getting rid of the qualifiers and just saying, here's, a, here's an actual legitimate requirement and standard that needs to be met to do this type of job. If you can meet that, regardless of who you are, and you want to do it, we, we want you to have that opportunity. Right. Those in uniform who are gay and lesbian who are allowed to serve open, and some of them, there's still many serving in silence, they put higher standards on themselves because they knew they were representing and they are incredibly professional uh, and they didn't want to feed into any of those stereotypes and I wouldn't say inside outside the Pentagon I'd say inside outside the beltway because the further you get away from Washington which is why I like to go in the fields and spend time with young soldiers you know you you ask senior officials and they think well I don't know we've never done it that way that change may cause some problems you ask sort of mid-grade officials and they say we'll figure out how to make it work and then you go ask junior officers or in, uh, jun- young enlisted and they're like they look at you like you're crazy we're already doing that. You're just catching up with us. Society is changing at a clip and we're recruiting from that society. And so it's time and time and time again when we make what they call social changes and people call them experiments. And I don't think that inclusivity and and opportunity are experiments. I think they're shared American values. Time and time we've done that. Desegregation, women in the military, don't ask, don't tell. The same arguments are used and they're disproven very quickly. Um, it's been, in my view, remarkably smooth about opening service. Who are we to deny an American the, the right to serve if they want to step up and make that commitment on our behalf? You recruit people. I mean, part of your uh, responsibility uh, in, in that um, windshield is recruiting people. What's your relationship with the VA and with the Veterans Administration? What do you think is if you could pick one thing you'd like to see done to help veterans more in this country, what do you think needs to happen? I think we need to do more. People sign up, they make a commitment to the United States. We, in turn, make a commitment to them, and we have to stay laser-focused on that. And uh, we have a close relationship with the VA because it, you, you are a soldier one day, and then you're you know, under the VA the next day, and we want to make that handoff as smooth as possible. And the thing that I would, if I were staying in this job longer, focus on is making sure I, I don't think we have a handle on behavioral health issues, post-traumatic stress. We are asking people to do unbelievable things that goes against the biology, uh, how we're wired. And this idea, we've done a lot to make sure we we have help available for when people come back, but they still have to seek it out. I think the whole paradigm has to change where we say, of course you're going to need help when you get back. We asked you to do something crazy uh, on behalf of your country. We need to have that help available and make sure we've diagnosed it properly so that anybody who has been injured in any way through service gets the care that they deserve, whether it's a visible wound or an invisible wound, and make sure we understand that when we're handing them off to the VA. 
Eric Fanning will complete his appointment with the Army in January. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing comes from WNYC Studios.